Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Jessica Flack, resident professor at the Santa Fe Institute. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Hey, great to have you on. I'm sure we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Jessica received her PhD from Emory University in 2004, studying animal behavior, cognitive science, and evolutionary theory, spending thousands of hours recording primate behavior at the world-famous Yerkes National Primate Research Center. Today, she's the director of, at SFI of C4, Collective Computations Group at SFI, which describes its audacious mission as, we work on how nature collectively computes solutions to problems and how these computations are refined in evolutionary and learning time. We explore these ideas at all levels of biological organization, from societies of cells, to animal societies, to markets, to machine-human hybrid societies. C4 research projects sit at the intersection of evolutionary theory, cognitive science, and collective behavior, statistical mechanics, information theory, and theoretical computer science. It's some serious shit here, I'm telling you. <laughs> We're going to get into it here. Jessica's also long been interested in some of my favorite things, the foundations of complexity science and the nature of causality. Now, let's start out with our first question. One of your new research ideas, which you worked on with some other folks at SFI and elsewhere, is that the long-held view that complexity emerges from interactions among simple components is wrong. That's a big challenge to convention. Indeed, our mutual friend Murray Goman used to remind the SFI community regularly that the full name of what SFI did wasn't complexity science, but rather complexity from simplicity. Tell us about your new view. Haha. Yeah. So I don't want to say Murray was wrong because of course Murray's never wrong, but, um, but so there's a sort of nuance that we need to add to that understanding of, of how complexity arises. And I think one of the things that's, that we're coming to understand with better and better observation and measurement tools is that lower levels of organization are not necessarily simpler than higher levels of organization. As an example, if you look at a eukaryotic cell, you know, it's not just, and this is really for people who are not cellular biologists, obviously, it's not just, um, you know, 10 or so organelles floating around in some cytoplasm. It's actually an incredibly complex thing with um, many, many molecular, thousands of molecular motors, densely packed organelles. Everything's optimally packed. It looks, when you, when, you, when you look at images of these things today, they look actually like cities do, especially if you look at a city from the point of view of um, sped up, like uh, in Godfrey Reggio's films, um, Koinosquatsi. So amazing complexity at the cellular level. And just recently it was discovered, for example, that cells can compute the XOR function. Certain neurons can compute the XOR function. So also individual cells, individual neurons are capable of incredibly complicated behavior, behavior that we thought required a larger system to perform. And so that's the first observation that in fact, lower levels of organization are a lot more complex than we've been giving them credit for. Now, one could say that well, the higher levels of organization contain the lower levels. And so even if they're more complex, the higher levels by definition are more complex in a sort of Russian doll model of complexity. But that's not really, um, at least as far as I'm concerned, a very interesting notion. 
of complexity, that Russian doll model. And I think what's really going on is that you've got this incredible complexity, lots of parts doing complicated things at lower levels. And then you've got the components trying to figure out how the world works, trying to estimate regularities. And through that process, they're doing what we call coarse graining, getting a handle on what those regularities are, what the things are in all of that complexity that they should pay attention to. And you get this kind of compression of that microscopic complexity. And the compression or the coarse graining, then even though it's lossy, and so you, you by definition, when you coarse grain, you lose information, the system also gains information because it gains information about what the right strategies are given those regularities. And as a consequence of this, you get what I call a macroscopic expansion. That is the capacity for the system to perform new functions because it has a better understanding of what strategies work in a given environment. So you have microscopic complexity. You have a what I'm calling um, an information bottleneck by virtue of the coarse graining or the compression of, of, of the regularities at the microscopic scale. And then because of that information bottleneck, you get this macroscopic expansion of function. So that's where the emergence comes in. So as far as Murray's points about complexity from simplicity, they're still sort of correct in the sense that the information bottleneck is simplifying. So you're getting the complexity through this coarse graining in a way. Um, but the, the, unfortunately, I think what's happened is the way people interpret that is they think that it means the microscopic scale is simple. Perhaps it is simple if you go lower, right? Maybe atoms and quarks are sort of simple, but maybe not. Maybe if we dig into them further, we'll find out that they're just as complex. Hard to say. Well, that's an interesting point, Jim. And I think before we get to atoms and quarks, we know that prokaryotes are a lot more um, complex than we thought, too. So it's been discovered that they can perform um, within a pro prokaryote complicated um, metabolic functions, and they have what would be something like pseudo-organelles in a compartments. So again, we underestimate the complexity there. Now, in terms of you know atoms and so forth, I think one of the one of the things we always have to remember is that physical systems, by virtue of having had many more many more hundreds of years to study them, good science, look to us now a lot simpler than perhaps they did when these things were first being worked out, right? So as you say, it's not entirely clear to me that physical systems are, you know, as simple as we like to think. I think in Murray's sort of eightfold way, you know, you know pr provides some backing for that, right? Yeah, he added some complexity downward, basically, right, from from what used to be very simple objects. Okay, here's our point, proton or neutron, and then we go, nope, not quite that simple. Exactly. As it turns out, every time you look further, what do we find? What's the most likely answer the further you look? Not quite so simple. Uh, so let's get back to this idea of microcomplexity and a bottleneck. It'd probably be helpful for the audience to have an actual example and maybe something at the level of a cell moving up. I don't know. What would be a good example? Well, let me start with the example that I've, that, I've, um, that I've worked on and where some of these ideas originally um, started, where I developed them. And that's in, actually in primate societies. And in, you mentioned I did thousands of hours of work observing primate societies, macaque and chimpanzee societies. And um, in the course of that work, I saw that the, the monkeys were sort of trying to figure out, they were, you know, this was well known in animal behavior, monkeys have a power structure, which is typically called a dominance hierarchy. Um, and they have fighting abilities that are kind of intrinsic, develop over time very slowly, but those fighting, in, in, those fighting abilities are invisible to the other monkeys. The monkeys have to sort of infer what the fighting ability is through fights. That's how they learn about who's weaker and stronger. They can't just see it. It's not like a bird who has a, a badge on, on its chest and the, the badge sort of tells the other bird, you know, 
how capable that bird is of, of, of winning a fight. The monkeys have to have to infer this through fights, the fighting underlying fighting ability. And they do so macaques like a pigtailed macaque, which is um, one of the species that I've worked with. These pigtailed macaques, they, they have this history of fights with other individuals. And, and over that history, one individual will learn that it's likely to lose to the other. And if the asymmetry between them is large so that one individual knows with a high probability it's going to lose, that individual emits what's called a subordination signal. And it, it emits this signal outside of the agonistic or fight context. And it tells the receiver of the signal that the sender recognizes that it's likely to lose and has agreed to yield if a conflict in the future arises. It's agreeing that the sender is agreeing to a state, subordinate state in the relationship. And so this subordination signal summarizes or is a coarse-grained representation of that fight history. And then the two individuals use it, they reference it to make decisions about how to sort of behave in the future with each other. Now, fights do continue, but they continue at a much lower rate. And the idea is that it's like a background process in computer science. The fights are continuing just so if something changes in the monkey's fighting ability or circumstances, that dominance relationship, that subordination contract can be reversed. Now, everyone in the group is doing this. They're all learning about each other's fights, and they're exchanging these signals. And the signal is highly unidirectional, meaning that only one individual in the pair gives a signal. So it's a very reliable indicator of this role. And now there's a network of these things, or a circuit, if you like, a circuit of these unidirectional signals. And um, in that circuit is encoded information about the distribution of power. It's essentially a mechanism that the monkeys have for voting on who they collectively perceive to be the most capable individual of winning fights. Mm, I like that. So you start out with a bunch of monkeys fighting, which is a complicated, many-to-many -many relationship, complex, I would say, formally. And that gets cooked down through presumably some genetically inclination to a at least fuzzy signal from which individuals say, I am submissive to you, a sort of a, a dyadic connection. And then all the monkeys give out those signals, at least all the submissive monkeys, anyone below the alpha, presumably. And then that set of signals unifies across the field of all monkeys in that particular troop to establish the kind of complicated network relationship of dominance hierarchy. Is that, did I get it pretty close? You did. And I'm just going to change a few things and that are okay. important to understand. And the first is that the fighting ability and, or and the ability to win any particular fight is, is governed by both sort of this intrinsic ability that develops over an individual's lifetime. So it's a slowly changing thing based on its experience and, and some on genetic, some genetic things like how big it is, but that's of course also a, a little bit environmental. And it's based on things like how a particular monkey feels on a given day or whether its alliance partners are around and so forth. So things that are temporally variable. And so the reason why the monkeys need a bunch of fights to figure out what the regularity is is because there are all these fluctuations. So that's why this coarse graining, the use of the signal is an important mechanism. It gives the monkeys a reliable indicator of the sort of overall state of the relationship. And, and it's important distinction too that it's a subordination signal, not just submission, because the monkeys do use similar signals in the fight context indicate they're going to yield in this particular fight. But by moving the signal outside the fight context to the peaceful context, the monkeys are reducing the uncertainty in the receiver that the signal stands for subordination and not just submission in the immediate context. So that's a really important innovation. And it relates to the evolution of language and how we can come back to this later and how um, individuals 
learn the meaning of signals that are temporally and spatially divorced from their reference. Very complicated and interesting problem. Okay, so now the monkeys have exchanged these signals, and you've got this network of these signals, and you can ask, or the monkeys can, by looking over the network, who gives signals to whom, figure out how much agreement there is based on the way the signals are being exchanged about who can use force successfully. So this is fundamentally a collective problem. And individuals can make errors in their assessment. That's very important, right? So the power structure that's arising out of this process can be imperfect. It may not uh, map directly onto the underlying distribution of fighting abilities. It's the outcome of this sort of collective assessment process. That's super interesting. So the idea is, is not just that we're recovering like a ground truth. That's hard to see the underlying distribution of fighting abilities, but we're recovering a kind of collectively constructed ground truth or view of of who's powerful. So when in this, in the groups that I've studied, one of the, and this isn't true in, in every group or every uh, macaque society, um, some are very different. There's a, the power distribution that's encoded in this circuit of signals is heavy tailed, meaning that there are a few individuals who sit out in the tail are different from the rest of the group who are perceived by everyone more or less as disproportionately powerful. So they're like our billionaires. And um, those individuals are, um, because they, they're perceived this way, they pay almost no cost. They get no aggression response to interventions in fights. And so they can perform functions like conflict management that could not be performed if the distribution were more normal or, or uniform, where they're, they're none of these billionaires, so to speak, right? So these individuals out in the tail can do things that by virtue of being perceived so different from everybody else that um, they wouldn't be able to do if the distribution were, were different. That's your emergent function. That's interesting. It shows that diversity has its uses. It basically produces classes that can have different roles than if everything were uniform. Absolutely. Another question for you, one of my old favorites, is there's some arguments in cognitive science that our reasoning is roughly Bayesian. If that were also true for macaques, was it the macaques, whatever monkeys these were, presumably if the fight ability differential was large, the number of conflicts necessary to emit a signal ought to be relatively small. And when the fighting ability is closer to being similar by Bayesian analysis, it will take more conflicts before you get a reliable signal. Is that what the data shows? Yeah, that basically is what the data show. And, and, and also the individuals who are very similar in fighting ability, they often don't signal at all and they sometimes avoid each other. So, um, it, you you need to fight. You would need to fight more to sort of figure out what the difference is, as you point out. But also, since with fluctuations and contextually variable stuff like how you're feeling today, or the weather, or the presence of your allies, would make so many fights required. Sometimes the strategy they adopt is just not to interact. That's interesting. That would basically point to my old favorite, roughly Bayesian, right? Of course, they don't sit there and run Bayes' theorem, but they say, hmm, this guy is too close to me. It would take a long time to prove my dominance, right? So not worth getting beat up that many times, even if I win. Well, Jim, you raise a very interesting point. You say they wouldn't be sitting there computing Bayes' theorem, but yes, consciously, they're not probably computing Bayes' theorem, but their brain may be doing that. That isn't, you know, a possibility that we, I think, get confused about in social cases where we think that we're consciously performing the computations rather than just layering that on top of computations our brain is performing, the explanation. Yeah, that was my point, is that, you know, I, I am a believer, more or less, that we are unconsciously running Bayes' theorem in the background for roughly, 
for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So that's why I asked the question. This happens to be a kind of a horizontal, interesting idea that I follow up on whenever I happen to get a sniff that it might be relevant. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And there's a lot one could discuss there. Absolutely. But we got a lot of things to talk about, so maybe we'll come back to that. So let's talk a little bit about causality. I know that's something you're interested in. It seems like every time anybody digs deeply into complexity, if we're being honest, we run into causality or we decide to sweep it under the rug. What are your thoughts on causality? (laughs) That's such a big question. (laughs) Yeah, give us a big answer. Okay. Well, I mean, I've thought about causality in a a few particular contexts, which I can mention. So one of them is in the context of what's called a downward causation, which is this idea that higher levels of organization somehow mysteriously impact lower levels of organization. And this has been a, a debate because often the higher levels are thought to be sort of statistical and it's not clear materially how this works how information can influence, you know, mass materials, so to speak. And so, you know, there's been a lot of nonsense around this downward causation discussion. And um, one of the things that that we've sort of hit upon in our work is that what's happening is, and it comes back to the course granny I mentioned, that as the components of of an adaptive system are estimating regularities, that's doing this course graining, they're starting to use these course grained representations rather than the environment, um, these course grained representations of the environment to make decisions. And even if those estimates are wrong, they're still using them to tune their behavior. And as the computational capacity of the components of the system, when it's similar, and when the sort of environments that the components are observing is somewhat similar, then these estimates can start converging. And you get what I call collective coarse graining. And so through this kind of collective coarse graining, these statistical regularities start to converge. Everyone's using the kind of same estimates to make decisions. And in that sense, you're, you're starting to get this downward causation. So then the, the components are still doing the work. They're reading these global variables that they're constructing through their estimates of the world. And they're tuning their behavior based on them. And so there's no mystical. We're, we've simplified the problem. We're being very operational. There's no mystical issue here. The components, the, you know, it's still materially instantiated. The components are doing the work. They're reading the variables. But you're getting these, this higher level starting to form as those as those estimates converge, as those coarse grainings converge, and you get one picture, even if it's wrong, more or less one picture in the system of how the world works. As we both know, downward causality is something people love to talk about and are often very slippery about it. Let's dig into your view about this a little bit. Now, the example I use for downward causality you know, as a thought case experiment, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, is let's imagine I, me, whoever that might be, decides to move my hand. Now, the atoms in my hand would normally, in the course of the life, follow Newton's law and just sit where they are. They jiggle around a little bit through Brownian motion, but they certainly wouldn't move 18 inches from right to left all of a sudden. The reason they did that is downward causation, where somebody, maybe it was me, decided, maybe using something called free will, which we'll get to later, to move my hand. And so that downward causation caused those atoms to move. One, is that a reasonable description of downward causation? And if so, how would you apply your thinking to that? So I distinguish between simple feedback, apparent downward causation, and effective downward causation. You know, in your your atom case is closest to um, what I would call simple feedback. So there is, you know, some consequence because the world has changed to those atoms. But the atoms are not reading um, anything about the world and making decisions based on that reading. 
In the apparent downward causation, you're getting tuning. So the components are reading, they're making, re they're coarse graining, and they're using those coarse grains to make decisions. So they're reading essentially global variables. Um, but the tuning can be partial and imprecise. And then this sort of like weaker form, the components, they need to be tuning their behavior to these estimates of, of, these, of these environmental or aggregate properties. And there's some kind of downward causation as soon as that happens. But it doesn't demand that the estimates of the aggregate properties are correct or even good predictors of the system's future state. So there so sort of theories for how the world work could be wrong. Okay, and then what happens is downward causation in this apparent downward causation, in my view, becomes effective downward causation, a much stronger form. When the, when the coarse-grained representation or these aggregate properties are predictive of the future state of the system, and another name for these variables, we call them slow variables, they're, they're, the aggregate properties of the slow variables are robust to small perturbations. The estimates of the variables are used um, by all components to tune decision-making, or most of them, and the components are the individuals are mostly in agreement about these variables, right? So your atoms are doing none of these things. And the estimates are converging so that there's an increase in what we say, we call a mutual information between the microscopic behavior and the macroscopic properties. So in the atom case, in the atoms case, you just have simple feedback. The environment's changed and that is, you know, has some consequences for the atoms, but they really haven't had a role in that. In order for it to be downward causation, the components have to have a role in it. They have to be perceiving or measuring some regularities and using those regularities to tune their behavior. That's the critical um, aspect of it in my view. Okay, let's take my example one step further. Maybe we can get into that realm. Would you describe the way the muscles behave relative to the concept in the head that says move your arm, presumably influenced by signaling over nerve systems, et cetera? Is that coming closer to your idea? So I don't know enough about the like neurophysiology of muscle movement to answer that question, but neurons like back propagation, I think when you have like feedback from a higher level to a lower level where the neurons have to actually make estimates of those regularities through the back propagation mechanism would be an example. So it all comes down to this. If the components are estimating regularities and then using those estimates to tune their behavior, and when there's a majority or a large number of them in the system doing this, that's when I call it effective downward causation. So that would certainly fit the case of the muscles because they're in a constant recurrent loop with the higher levels of the brain and they're constantly adjusting as they go. Yeah, so this doesn't require any, you know, it, and I have to be careful, I sophisticated cognition because actually I think there's a lot of sophisticated cognition going on in lower levels, but this isn't, um, you know, just at the individual level. It certainly can describe as you, you know, muscle cells in principle and, and neurons, it certainly seems to describe some, um, some, you know, neural systems where there are these uh, feedbacks with, the neurons estimating regularities. Gotcha. And the regularities in this case are what? The, the brain state? What is the regularity that they're estimating? Well, um, so for example, it could be something like a, a brain state encoded in some time scales or, you know, some circuit property. Um, a simple example would be in an experiment of the random dot, um, basically of dots on a screen moving left or right. And there's a lot of dots and that you can control the number that are moving left or right. And a subject, a monkey is watching the screen and has to estimate which direction the dots are moving. And so the neurons receive some input, some signal that's sort of based on the monkey's, you know, intake of this visual scene. And then the, the neurons have to decide how to respond in, to that signal, how to fire. Okay. And so then the state is the dots on the screen. In that case, the state would be, yes, something in the environment, the dots on the screen. And the 
downward causality would be the behavior of the monkey based on those dots? Well, no. so the, in the case of the neurons here, so the neurons then have to sort of estimate which way the dots are moving, and then they have an opinion about this, and that opinion is encoded at the population level. Um, and an interesting question is, you know, if the neurons have different opinions, how do they come to consensus about it? And then presumably, this is a little bit more complicated example, that consensus view of what's going on is then passed on to another system, another population of neurons in the brain that maybe control the motor output of the neuron and which direction of, of the monkey and which direction the monkey looks to indicate to the experimenter whether the dots are moving left or right. So the downward causation always has to be from, you know, a, a higher organizational level to a lower organizational level. And so I'm not sure in that case whether, you know, it, it's occurring in the population of neurons that's encoding which direction the monkey should look or, or further downstream. Okay. It's getting there. It's still a, a difficult topic, right? They're still not clear in my head. Maybe it is in yours, but I think I'm, we have to all do a little bit more thinking about this. Well, the monkey example affords, the, you know, a really easy version of this in the sense that the monkeys in the downward causation occurs in multiple contexts. So the downward causation occurs in the signaling context, when they reference the signal, the subordination signal for decision-making. Right. So they've estimated the regularity from the fights. They um, encode that regularity with the signal exchange. They reference the signal to make decisions about how to interact in the future. And then as the signals consolidate in the network, the signal exchange consolidates in the network and they start computing the power distribution, they reference the power distribution for decision-making. What's the cost they're going to pay in fights based on how they're perceived collectively in the group in terms of capacity to win a fight. And so you get downward causation from the power distribution to their decisions during conflicts and, and other um, aspects of social interaction. So you have downward causation there in two, at two levels, one at the signaling level and one in the power distribution. Okay. I will call out to our audience that Jessica had written a quite accessible paper called Course Graining as a Downward Causation Mechanism. Is that still a paper that you'd recommend people read to get a sense of your thinking? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I found that to be quite good, actually. Final question on causality. Are you familiar with Judea Pearl's work and his work at trying to unify probability and causality? Yes, uh, yes. Um, I'm not an expert on Judea Pearl's work, but yes, I know his book and his papers. And it um, related to some work that we do on robustness. What's the essence of his idea about unifying probability and causality? Well, I'm not sure that I want to summarize that, but I can say a little bit about causality in the context of robustness and some of the challenges that we face in measuring robustness. So, of course, robustness is the ability of a system to maintain a function or state or structure in response to perturbations. And uh, one of the challenges in measuring robustness is that it's um, often not visible until there is a perturbation. And you have to be very careful about certain kinds of things. Like, for example, you could do an experiment where you perturb an element of a system or component of a system, and you see no change to the system. And you ask yourself, well, why might this be? Is it that the system's robust to this perturbation? Possibly. Or an alternative explanation is that the component that you perturbed makes a very small causal contribution to the function of interest. So let's say, like again, I can give you an example from our monkey society or a gene regulatory network. In the monkey case, one of the things we did is we knocked out the policing mechanism, that's that this, this mechanism that these individuals in the tail of the power distribution perform, this conflict management mechanism, where they break up fights in, impartially among um, other individuals in the group. So they don't take a side. 
And they can do this by, because they're perceived um, to be so successful or so powerful by, by the individuals in the group. And so we knocked out this policing function by removing these individuals from the group and confining them. So the removal was partial. They had vocal and visual access to the group, but they couldn't actually perform any interventions. And um, we had to sort of show in advance that they made a causal contribution to fights, that they actually um, were impartially breaking up these fights. And so one of the issues in robustness, as I said, is, is knowing whether the if you observe no change to a system as a result of the perturbation, it's because the component you disabled or, or perturbed is making a causal contribution. And then what you want to dis, then what you want to measure is, and ideally if you can, you want the magnitude of that causal contribution. And then you want to measure what we call the exclusion dependence. And this is work with David Krakauer and Nihat I. And the exclusion dependence is the change to the system function or the target function in the absence uh, when you do the perturbation. So now you have the causal contribution prior to prior to the perturbation and the exclusion dependence, what happens to the system um, when there is a perturbation. And it's the difference in these two quantities that tells you whether the system is robust. So in other words, you have to knock out a node that makes a causal contribution and you have to observe that when it's, when it's removed, the system changes. And so in the, in the case you're talking about here, you took out these highly dominant uh, animals that were playing the policing function and when you took them out, something changed. And we knew in advance that they were making a causal contribution by virtue of their intervention behavior, right? And then, yes, we disable the system and measure the exclusion dependence. This is so you, you, you take these two quantities into account so you're not measuring trivial robustness, essentially. Gotcha. I like it. That's good. So one thing that can happen when you do the perturbation is the system, if you don't set the time scale of measurement correctly, the system could rewire itself to recover the function in an alternative way. And that would also make it seem like the system had not changed. But if you knew that the components that you were removing were making a causal contribution, then you would question your results. So again, this distinction between the causal contribution prior to perturbation and then the exclusion dependence as a result of perturbation, these are two different you know, concepts and they're very important to keep in mind. Okay, that's good. Since we've been talking about slippery topics, let's go into one of the slipperiest. What are your thoughts about this thing some people call free will and maybe how does it relate to consciousness? Okay, so I have a some, somewhat, I think, slightly different take on this. And uh, it is definitely related to two dominant, um, my take is definitely related to two dominant ideas in neuroscience, which I'll come to in a second. But um, I basically feel, think about free will as the feeling, and it's very important, the feeling that we can make choices. And then choice is just the ability to select among alternatives due to these sort of inherent stochasticity in the world and errors in information processing, which I think are co common because of all that complexity that we discussed earlier. So I distinguish between choice and free will, with choice is, is the ability to select among alternatives given the stochasticity in the world due to you know, a variety of different things. And free will is the feeling that we can make choices. So by saying feeling, it doesn't mean that it's an illusion. The important point is that it's a kind of emotion, a feeling about, how, um, about whether we can make choices. And it, and it relates to consciousness in the sense that for me, and again, this is a slightly different take, I think, although it's been talked about for so long, probably since humans could talk, that I'm sure someone has articulated it this way. But for me, consciousness is, is essentially the degree of access to computations in our brains at, this, at, at the system level. So whether it's the whole brain or the whole organism or some subsystem, whatever your um, system, however you define it is, however you define your system, it's, it's a degree of access to computation at the brain at the system level 
captured by an effective theory, essentially a, a theory for how the, how the computation works, that whether right or wrong, lets the assessor understand how the computation is being made. So it's not about, and perception, I'll introduce that too, perception is a state of the world, how we, how we perceive the state of the world, and elements in those states. And, um, you know, you often hear about consciousness as this, this integrated thing. And I would say that it's perception that can be integrated. And consciousness really is about the degree of access to computations in our brain. So we have a less access to our motor control, explaining them, articulating them, than we do to, in principle, our understanding of social interactions. And one more point I want to add is that this sort of effective theory or um, access to these computations can be given in a variety of different ways. It needn't be in natural language. It could be in mathematics, or it could be even um, expressed musically or in terms of visual imagery or texture. So it's just about an alternative representation. So again, consciousness is the degree of access to computations in the brain. What does it mean, access? To be able to see them, to understand them, or to use them? To have a sort of a theory for how the computation is performed, whether it's right or wrong. So when you do walk down a set of steps, you often have no access to the computations your brain are making, is making to um, ensure you put your step, your foot down in the right place. Your brain's doing that computation, but you can't describe it. Now, if you were pushed by a friend who, you know, you tripped or something, asked what happened, you might be able to sort of make up an explanation based on logic or your sort of understanding of geometry or something for how your brain performed that computation. So I say our conscious understanding of many of our motor control movements is very low. But perhaps we have, a, we have better theories for social interaction. So our conscious understanding of social interaction seems to be a bit higher, although that could be, that could be, full, you know, that could be um, a, a little bit of an illusion. Well, this seems like a pretty high-level sort of evolutionary definition of consciousness. I mean, I'm thinking here, the way you're describing it, it only applies to humans. No, I don't think so, because that's why I said that the representation needn't be in natural language. Okay. It could be a mathematic, it could, mathematical, it could be visual imagery, it could be geometric. There are many alternative representations that other organisms could be using to sort of have a theory for how their brains perform these computations. Why do they need a theory? I like to use Gerald Edelman's distinction between primary consciousness, as he would describe it, the kind that we are pretty confident that a dog has, versus extended consciousness, which is the kind that for sure humans have, and maybe some of the great apes, and maybe some whales and dolphins have. And his definition of primary consciousness of a dog is essentially it's in its own movie of the world, right? It's in a scene and it acts and it feels that it's in this scene and it doesn't necessarily theorize about that. While extended consciousness in Edelman's terminology does start to bring in concepts like self-awareness and the ability to theorize. Is your definition either of those two or something, something else? Yeah, I mean, the, the definition of consciousness, is, you know, the ability to access those computations and have a kind of effective theory for how they're being performed is related to Edelman's second point. But I would not restrict that to humans. I think we don't know the answer to this question yet. And like I said, by allowing many different types of representations, then we're not ruling this kind of consciousness out in other animals because we're focusing on the ability to do this in natural language or mathematics. Right, so that's, that's an important point. Now, in, in neuroscience, there are two big theories, as I understand it, for, for um, consciousness. And one is, comes from some French, I think mostly French neuroscientists, uh, and, it's, and it's basically called the global neuronal workspace idea of consciousness. And it's similar to, to what I'm articulating in the sense that it suggests that there are many different processes going on in your brain. And when you're conscious of something, 
you you sort of have access to those computations in, in many different parts of your brain. So and and the way it sort of comes from this idea, I think that was originally came out of early days of AI, where you have a kind of blackboard and different processes basically post information to this blackboard. And when it's posted to the blackboard, it's globally av- so-called globally available information. The blackboard, of course, is small or finite, so you can't post everything there all at once. And the more you can post there, the more conscious you are, so to speak. That's, um, that's one take on a global neuronal workspace, which comes from these um, French neuroscientists. I think it's very interesting. And that's related to what I'm saying, although uh, not identical. And then, and then the other idea comes from like Tononi and Christoph Koch and people like that, integrated information theory, which is more or less, there are different takes on this, but more or less the idea that consciousness is, is about sophisticated mechanisms that through integration and modularity allow you to re- represent a, a web of causal, net, of, of causal effects. And the, the, the sort of higher you, this measure called phi is, the more conscious you are. So, and the idea is that a higher phi means that you can represent, you have a network structure that can represent more of these causal interactions. And so I would say that what I'm saying is more, it's closer in some respects to the sort of global neuronal workspace, except I'm also including this idea of this effective theory so that you have this theory for how your brain's performing these computations, which brings in a little bit of that Tononi perspective, mm-hmm. right? Because so you've got on the one hand, this sort of global neuronal workspace that says, you get access to these computations when they're posted to this blackboard, this kind of global posting. And then the Tononi, which is sort of emphasizing this web of, of causal interactions that's made possible by this particular type of network structure where this phi is maximized. Yep. Yeah, I would add a little bit to that, which is the global workspace theory was actually, I think, originally fully articulated by Bernard Bars, who's an American, though it is being pushed today by Frenchmen like Dehaney, etc. Exactly. That's right. Bars, Dehaney, and Chengju, I think is the same. Yeah, I don't know that one. In my own work in consciousness, I basically follow bars with some extensions and corrections. And certainly we have Tononi and Koch with the integrated information. But there's a third real important one, which is the more bodily emotional theories of people like Antonio Damasio. One of the books that I strongly recommend to people, if they're interested in understanding his perspective, uh, is The Feeling of What Happens. Yeah. He argues that the seat of consciousness is not in the cortex or the thalamocortical connections or in perception or anywhere else, but it's deep in the brainstem in the feeling of having a body and that that is where consciousness comes from. And so he would argue consciousness goes way, way, way back evolutionary. And I would say those are the three differing arguments from the neural science community. And then, of course, we have other arguments from people like David Chalmers about the hard problem, which we don't really need to get into today because that's above our pay grade. I think what, we, what we've covered actually tackles Chalmers' hard, hard problem exactly. That, I mean, so what I would add to this is, so I don't, I don't really see that there's a hard and, a, and, a, and an easy problem as Chalmers articulated. I, I think that that's false. And that the, 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 the free will thing, that I, the point I made earlier, that free will is a feeling that we can make choices is related to the um, embodiment points you're making. And this mind-brain distinction comes back to the coarse graining and uh, the global neuronal workspace points, which is that by coarse graining, you're come out, coming out with these sort of summary statistics, global variables, essentially, that you're posting to this blackboard. And that's where you get this, the notion of mind is essentially that. The summary statistics are coarse grain representations of neural dynamics, the weak problem of Chalmers, um, that we have some access to secondarily. And when we have that access, that's what I call consciousness. And so, like I said, I'm not going to restrict it to humans because I'm not going to limit it to those representations being stated in terms of natural language. They can be any type of representation. So, you know, dogs, 
amoeba, anything that can have a representation of the computations that is performing, that's secondary, would be um, a candidate for for having some level of consciousness. I I, I just don't think that that Chalmers thing. You know, I I don't believe in that. Um, again, it's like the downward causation. It, it, it's mystical. That's my take as well, even though I can't prove it. My intuition, having been working in this space now for eight years, is that there is no hard problem. You know, guys like Daniel Dennett would agree with that as well. But we haven't quite been able to figure out exactly how to articulate it, though I like your approach, which is we think about things like free will. Let me try to put your words into some different words and tell me if I get it or not, is that if we think of free will as the ability to make choice within a certain level of abstraction or what you would call coarse graining, then we can say that we do have free will, even though I'm currently reading Brian Greene's new book, you know, explanation of everything about science from the Big Bang to Beethoven, essentially. And he argues, oh, there's no such thing as free will. It's all fundamentally reductionist physics all the way down. But your analysis would say that if, at the right level of coarse graining, then to the degree we have choices within that coarse graining, then we have free will. Yes, I think that's, that's basically what I'm saying. I would, I would highlight two things that one, our choice space could be larger than we imagine or understand. And so our, we might, in that case, our feeling of free will is less than it could be if we fully understood our choice space. That's one sort of nuance. And the other is that, yes, how you coarse grain will impact how large you perceive that choice space to be. Now, I'm going to branch off here. Something not in my notes. So could something like meditation affect our ability to access our free will or change how we feel it or experience it? Yeah, I think I think there are definitely ways that we could. So let's say our, you know, we're highly stressed, and so we don't perceive the full choice space. We think there are certain options that are closed to us, but they're not actually. And by taking making certain interventions, meditation might be one. Exercise could be another, where we calm our brains or change our attentional mechanisms or you know quiet our responses we might be able to perceive a larger choice space and then increase that feeling of, of being able to make choices and in that way, so to speak, increase our free will. Possibly. I mean, that's really speculating and it's a fun, it's a fun thing to think about. People who listen to the show regularly know that I'm fairly skeptical about spirituality and I call it the S word. And so I've had some very interesting conversations with people who are uh, practitioners of what they call spirituality. I will say I have learned from them and I hope they have learned from me. Next time I run into one of these discussions, I'm going to ask them, all right, and I'll present your concept of free will. And I'd say, explain to me how contemplative practice or other forms of spirituality may or may not, you know, expand or refine or improve this concept of free will. So Interesting. So I'm going to move along here a little bit. You're a co-author with a bunch of other of my favorite complexity science folks on a paper titled The Challenges and Scope of Theoretical Biology. And it's a paper I'd also recommend to our listeners. Despite its incredibly deep ideas, it is quite accessible and, as I recall, has no math at all. I know it's a huge topic. Could you tell us what you can about it? Yeah, so I mean, this is obviously a huge point of interest at the Santa Fe Institute, law-like behavior and adaptive systems. And, and there seem to be, you know, lots of regularities in law-like phenomena in physical systems. And one question is why there, there aren't as many or why we haven't identified as many or uh, as often laws in biology and, and adaptive systems. And, and so this paper is sort of an attempt to um, address that. And this is a big theme in my work, in fact. So 
I guess I would step back and start with this observation that energy, energy was sort of at the core of 20th century science and, and maybe the preceding, say, 300 years. And the focus on energy in, in sort of in physics, of course, culminated with the splitting of the atom during the Manhattan Project. And in biology, for the most part, the focus has been on, so this is a really big picture to sort of get into this difference of, uh, you know, of why, why I seem to be fewer laws in biology. In biology, also, for the most, for the 20th century and before, the emphasis has been on energy, how organisms get it, process it, and convert it into offspring. Information is always recognized as important, right? So you've got Wheeler, for example, arguing that um, bits, in fact, precede matter in that lovely paper he wrote. And then you've got James, you know, connecting entropy, the number of options available to a system, to statistical mechanics, information theory. Um, so, and, and then you've got people like Seth Lloyd writing books about um, universe itself being a computer. But I say, despite this, this, the overwhelming focus has been on energy. And, and I've argued, and we sort of dealing with this in that paper, to make progress in biology, information has to be more central. And to sort of see why that's the case, it's, it's sort of useful to step back and think about some distinctions between physical and bio, biological systems. So physics, for the most part, you know, dominated by concepts like pressure, temperature, and entropy that emerge through fairly simple collective interactions and kind of they give these collective interactions give, give sort of deep insight into the behavior of the physical universe, right? And so physical particles have properties like position, velocity, and mass, and their collective properties in the macroscopic world of, of temperature and pressure and so forth. And you get thermodynamics, this kind of theory for a relationship among the macroscopic or aggregate variables at equilibrium. And you get these regularities then, like the ideal gas law, which is an equation of state that tells you the amount of gas is determined by its um, pressure, volume, and temperature. And, and so you get the, this these regularities or, or laws like the ideal gas law. Now, biology also makes use of comparable collective concepts like to, as physics does, but in biology, these are concepts like metabolism, conflict management, robustness, some of the things we've, we've already mentioned. And in contrast to physical systems, these are very functional properties with consequences through downward causation and so forth to the system and its components. So physics is essentially producing, and we're going to get to the, to, the, to the close point in just a second. Physics is essentially producing order through the minimization of energy, and biology is doing this with the addition of information processing. And now ordered states, we look around biology and we see not a lot of laws, but ordered states are ubiquitous. There's law-like relations, it seems, all over the place. But why adaptive systems have this extra step of information processing, and whether it's the, the reason why we see fewer laws in biology are these big open questions that people ask at SFI. So one of the things we want to understand is what do what does information processing do in biology? And uh, a nice sort of entry point into this is to think of the scaling work of Jeffrey West and his colleagues, Jim Brown and Brian Enquist and others, right? So Kleiber, of course, observed a long time ago, 100 years or so, this robust statistical relationship between mass and metabolic rates that such a mass scales to three-quarter power, right? So this is, this is one of the laws we have in biology. And then Jeffrey and his colleagues came along and derived this from first principles, from axioms about how um, these axioms capture the energetic constraints that sort of like how energy is distributed through the circulatory system of mammals. So we get this law, but it's a law for an example where there's a strong energetic constraint. Now, we also, like I said, have information processing all over biology. And so Jeffrey and, and crew sort of shifted to cities and they started asking me about scaling in cities. And they're asking there about questions like, how does population size scale with crime rate and patent generation and so forth? And one of the interesting things they find is that for a lot of these city variables, the scaling is super linear. That means, you know, it's an increasing return to scale in contrast to the sublinear three-quarter scale power, uh, three-quarter scaling that was found for the metabolic systems. 
So, so here's an interesting observation. In these systems where information processing is important that seem to be collective, you get super linear scaling. And in the strongly constrained, energetically constrained systems, you get this sort of sublinear scaling. So there does seem to be this difference or this implication of having information and collective effects in your system. And then the, sort of the last point I want to make is that this brings us to the collective computation. So, and back to our point about complexity at the beginning of this talk, when you asked about the information bottleneck and macroscopic expansion. So what does information do? So information processing do the system. Well, my suggestion is that a lot of information processing is erroneous. The components are making mistakes or have restricted computational capacity. So they cannot perfectly estimate or optimally estimate regularities in their environment. So what do they do? Instead of doing it just on their own, they collectively compute the regularities. They collectively coarse grain. And in this way, they sort of solve this problem that information processing introduces. And the problem is subjectivity. And so the reason why we haven't seen or identified a lot of laws in biology yet is because we need, in order to see those laws, we need to understand how the system is processing information through collective computation. And once we have that, we'll have a better idea of what the relevant macroscopic variables are. All right. So the basic idea is that because the system is performing these computations, without taking the system's point of view, we will never see the laws. And in physical systems, that is absolutely not required. Could you expand that just a little bit, the difference between physical systems and the biological? I didn't quite get that last sentence. Okay, right. So the microscopic world is complex. We've sort of established that at the beginning of this conversation. So how do components get regularities? So they're doing information processing. They're estimating regularities despite all of that complexity. Yet they're error prone. So they don't make these estimates perfectly. So information processing in adaptive systems is introducing subjectivity. It's introducing idiosyncratic views for how the world works because of the errors that components are making. And so one of the arguments that, that we make in our work is that one way to overcome this subjectivity and produce ordered states is by collectively computing, pooling our opinions of how the world works and getting the consensus view. Now, there are two consequences of that. One is that we might get a better picture for how the world works. But another is that sometimes we're not recovering the ground truth, if there is one out in the environment, that is like something like the height of the Eiffel Tower that, over which we have no control, but we're computing a social regularity, like power. So my point when I was going through the monkey example earlier about the power being kind of a, the outcome of a collective perception is that the view of power is in some sense being created as the system moves through um, its, the dynamics. So it's, it's collective. And so in that sense, the power distribution is not a ground. It's not, you're not recovering a ground truth. You're recovering a collectively constructed variable that is a result of information processing. So my point is that in physical systems where there is much less of this information processing and it's not as error prone or error prone at all, the law-like regularities are easy to observe from the observer's point of view. But that in adaptive systems, Law-like regularities are a little bit hidden because in order to see them, you have to understand how the system perceives the world, how it's pro processing information, what the errors are it's making, and, and how those errors are impacting the world that the system through the components through its, their interactions are creating, like in the power case or in our decision to elect Trump or whatever, right? So these things are not based on, on ground truths out there in the world. They're based on the collective dynamics. They're an outcome from information processing the collective dynamics. And one could say, perhaps you have to even take a subjective point of view from the perspective of a component. Does that somehow make sense? Exactly. You have to try and figure out 
how the components perceive the world, what their theories are for the, how the world works, and how those theories combine to produce their social structure and, and, and um, you know, their, their, their collective enterprise. You have to take their point of view. And I think once we start doing this more seriously, we will identify laws and adaptive systems. Another way of putting this is that there are not as many, so the macroscopic variables that observed in the Kleiber case, Kleiber's observations were not mechanistic. They were, it was an aggregate level observation, macroscopic observation that mass and metabolic rate scale. In the city's case, there's like many, many variables that you could measure. And how do you know which are the macroscopic variables described like qualities of cities? How do you know what the right ones are? Well, the right ones in some sense are the ones that have you know, a downward causation consequence for the system, the ones that the, the components are constructing through their interactions and can perceive or read so they can tune again in response. So without taking the system's point of view, we can't know or titrating in some sense between the microscopic their interactions and the, and the macroscopic world they're creating. We can't know what the right variables are a priori. This is very good. I really like that. That made it ring for me. Let's move on now to another topic. It's actually from the same paper. I have a quote. How much of biological nature can be predicted from basic physical law? This question is simple to answer. Effectively, zero. This connects directly with the thorny question of emergence. So we're getting to our another slippery topic here. What are your thoughts about the thorny question of emergence? You know, my, you're going you're gonna to detect a theme here, but I believe all of these things, free will, consciousness, and emergence, are overly mystified. The mind-brain problem, right? I, and, and I think it comes down to just being a little bit more materialist about this. So emergence for me is when you have a reduction in uncertainty, and generally a slow variable is, is a coarse grain variable is what's giving you that. So uh, again, like if you take my macroscopic expansion thing in the, in the power example, which are fairly easy to think through, you get this distribution of power that's sort of encoded in this network. Typically with emergency, we think there's some kind of nonlinearity so it makes it hard to predict, but that's not the only thing. So in the, in the power case, the algorithms that are used to quantify the power structure that sort of tell you how it's encoded in the, net, the network or circuit of, of signaling interactions, there's some nonlinearities in those, we think. Um, so the power distribution itself has a little property of emergence to it, but the real emergence comes in the functional consequences of having this heavy tail distribution with these few individuals sitting way out in the tail and being able to do this policing. So you get the slow variable the, this, the, and the uncertainty reduction to the power distribution, and then the surprise comes from the performance of this new function, policing. So again, for me, it's not that mysterious emergence. It comes from slow variables and coarse graining and uncertainty reduction and the production of, of, of surprise through new function. And I don't think there's more to it than that. I think one, one thing that's um, hard to understand is, is sometimes why it doesn't occur. And there are perhaps other ways than, than what I just described for it to be generated. For example, there was a study that came out the other day in Nature Physics on um, schooling behavior in fish that showed that you can get the schooling through noise. The alignment decisions of the fish, uh, when they're noisy, can push the fish from a poorly aligned state to one where they're highly aligned. And in that sense, that's a very different mechanism that, than what I have been suggesting in the power case where, with the coarse grain. There's no coarse grain necessary there, and that's interesting. So, but you have emergence potentially in both cases. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, for those interested in really digging into emergence, one book I'd recommend is The Emergence of Everything, How the World Became Complex by Harold Morowitz. He basically describes our whole universe as something like 27 emergences from quarks up to social systems. And it's actually quite interesting. Have you read that one? 
I, I've, I've looked through it. I know I used, you know, I knew Harold, of course, great guy. Yeah, he was actually my first mentor in the complexity area before I even came out to Santa Fe when he was at George Mason. When I first retired from business, he was the first guy I ran into. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had a huge influence on me, to say the least. This one we can punt on if you don't have a, a good thought on, but Perigogene and his far from equilibrium dissipative structures, do you find that in any way useful in thinking about or understanding emergence? Prigogine's idea is that, and this, of course, not in the Santa Fe tradition, this is what they call the Brussels tradition, I think, that essentially complexity emerges in far from equilibrium systems. And essentially, it's the way the universe dissipates far from equilibrium energy flows is that the complex systems get spun up and they use up the energy and they degrade it by the second law. And that's what they do. And that's essentially where complexity comes from. I, I haven't read Prigogine in many, many years, but but I will say one thing. I do agree that you know a lot of adaptive systems are obviously we don't really have the framework yet to to, to to deal with this non-equilibrium, but that they recover some of those equilibrium properties by having kind of overlapping time scales, uh, so that they do create these slow variables that I keep talking about these coarse grain variables that essentially give an effective equilibrium. And uh, an effective equilibrium. So the slow variable creates a background that, from the point of view of the component, is more or less stable or constant, and against which it can adapt. And so, on the one hand, we need better formalisms and approaches for working into working in non-equilibrium ideas into adaptive systems for sure. On the other hand, I think adaptive systems have developed ways of sort of recovering essentially equilibrium states through these kind of effective through slow variables and and um, and these these are. Uh, have a kind of an effective equilibrium as a consequence of these slow variables. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I always throw in a Perigogene question with SFI people because I always notice that most of them either push back or don't know too much about it. I do think it's an area of complexity that I wish the SFI people would learn more about because I, I do think it has some merit. That's my editorial comment for the day. I think that's a fair point, Jim. I mean, it's one of those things that we sort of cover or learned about, you know, in early days, in our early work at complex systems and at the summer school and so forth. And, and I haven't really thought about too much since, and I should take a look at it again. Cool. Let's move on to the next topic. From your Edge bio, you say, a central philosophical issue behind this work, meaning your work, is how nature overcomes subjectivity, there's that word again, inherent in information processing systems to produce collective ordered states. Yeah. Pretty much a summary of a lot of things you've talked about, but you do pose it as a philosophical issue. So what do you think are the philosophical implications of your work? Are there truly metaphysical issues that arise or can complexity, including emergence, be described uh, strictly in the language of science inside a realist program with no recourse to metaphysics? I think that it's, you know, in the end, science is, is sufficient. I do believe that, but most of the work that I do, and some of us at SFI fall into this camp, is very much in the business of taking concepts that from philosophy or that are sort of outside of science and turning them into questions that can be approached using scientific methods. So I, all of my work sort of sits on the, the, on the edge of, or between philosophy, on that border between philosophy and science. Um, but, we're, but we're very much in the business of, of taking these questions that maybe from a science perspective seem ill or poorly defined, you know, from a science perspective, and, and, and turning them into something that, to a model that can be analyzed mathematically or approached with data. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm at that border for sure. And there are other SFI people who are 
who are not anywhere near that border and much more interested in, you know, they develop profound methods for thinking about networks, but their questions are very clearly defined from the get-go. So that's my partial answer to your question. Give me an example of part of your work that's actually informed by an actual philosophical question. Certainly this, this distinction between collectively constructed macroscopic world and a ground truth, right? So this is a, and downward causation is another one, right? Most biologists or, or most people who work in adaptive systems are, you know, generally thinking about the system, learning about states of the world, where the states of the world are sort of exogenous to the system and outside its control. And I think we need to, you know, take seriously that by, by, by virtue of this erroneous information processing, um, a lot of the world is being collectively constructed. And so, so those ideas come from, you know, originally they come out of certain areas of philosophy and definitely some of the structural and early 20th century anthropologists uh, were thinking about these kinds of things. Claude Levi-Strauss and others, Ruth Benedict, and I studied that work early on. There's been a lot of influence from those literatures in early days to my sort of original thinking about this stuff. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it is interesting because some of the most interesting problems are right in there in that liminal space where we don't even quite know how to fully state the problem correctly. That's right. At least initially. And, you know, so we should kind of iterate between uh, what is the problem exactly? And once you get the problem stated right, sometimes it's not that hard to figure out. Yeah, no, that's, it's, uh, that is the, that's sort of what we do. It's exactly that. Yeah, it's actually one of my insights into artificial general intelligence is a lot of the work being invested in today by companies like Google is in so-called question answering capabilities. I keep pushing back and say, I want to see question asking capability. That would be far more impressive, actually. Right. <laughs> People look at me like I'm nuts, but I think you get it. Yeah, no, I highly value that. And that's true. I've found that, frankly, in my working with scientists, that the really best ones are the ones that are the best in asking questions. And the variance in their ability to answer questions is less than their ability to ask questions. That's good, because I feel that's my skill. And sometimes I have no ability to answer my own questions. Ah, that's good. Well, that shows you that you're brilliant. So that's good by the rut rule of how to measure science. So that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> Only we're really true. But... <laughs> I love it. Another thing you wrote recent, I don't know if it was recently or not, but chapter nine in a work called Social and Economic Engineering. Mm -hmm. I read that and it reminded me of the possibly false road many of us nerdy kids went down when we read the Foundation Trilogy way back yonder and Harry Seldon and his psycho history and social engineering. And of course, it's worth noting that the Foundation Trilogy, it's just been announced, is going to be made into a TV series from Apple. That should be interesting. How the heck are they going to make a science fiction series from a really deep intellectual story that has no sex and no violence? Hmm, that may take some work. Yeah. But anyway, to the topic of social economic engineering, you seem to take the line, if I read it correctly, that, hey, maybe we can now do some social engineering and economic engineering. What say you to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of, um, so I've, I've written a, a couple little essays on this, and I, and I think a lot of the engineering that we've done has been sort of reactive and qualitative. And so with big data, with some methods and concepts that I'll talk about in a second, um, with machine learning and so forth, I think we are at this point where there could be a big change in how we engineer things. And, are, and you see a little bit of that, the sort of foreshadowing of that with the sort of, sort of Facebook stuff, both from the science side and the intervention interference by, you know, Russia or, wherever, or whomever into um, Facebook. Basically, what's happening is that we now have vast quantities of microscopic data, of data on individual behavior. 
And, um, and we're in a position where for the first time, and it comes back to these micro to macro maps. So, you know, and in the, just as, a, as an aside, that's that's sort of an important aside. In the in the Jeffrey work on scaling, you know, they had the macroscopic observable mass scales with metabolic rate, and they had some axioms from which they derive the microscopic. So they have they build this micro to macro map. And what I've been saying for the information processing systems is you can't build that micro to macro map without having some idea of how the sort of components are processing information, how they're getting building their effective theories for how the world works. So to do that, you need good microscopic data. You need data on what they're doing, how they see the world, what their strategies are. And so with Simon Dedeo and David Krakauer, we developed um, this approach called inductive game theory a while ago, which is basically, uh, it was a kind of response to um, simple game theory models, a, a negative response then where the strategies and the payoffs and everything's being posited in toy models. And what we said, well, no, we want to go into the data and actually pull the strategies out. So you get all this, you have this rich time series on individual interactions and behavior, go into that time series and try and extract the strategies that the individuals are using to make decisions in their social environment. And once you have these strategies and you build up, you know, uh, how they collectively interact. And to do this, we built circuits of how these strategies interact to produce a macroscopic property of interest, like in an animal society, the fight size or power distribution. It could be, you know, a city variable, anything really. And so it's a very different way of building a micro to macro map than, than in, in the sort of like um, mass metabolic rate case. And, uh, and what we, one of the reasons we wanted to build these maps in addition to, you know, the, the sort of foundational region, which, reason, which is getting at laws in information processing systems and uh, figuring out what those laws are by taking the system's point of view and having, you know, all those strategies and data from the system itself. Another reason is because we thought by having these micro to macro maps and then understanding how you um, simplify them or how the system simplifies them to make decisions would tell us in a more informed way and potentially highly quantitative way what interventions we could perform to induce changes at the macroscopic level like in social structure, for example. So if you had a theory for how power distribution was arising in a given system, and you knew what the dominant causal, coming back to our causality discussion, dominant causal contributors are to uh, a particular power distribution, then you could intervene in a more informed way on those variables or individuals to change um, the, the type of power distribution that you see. And so the, the basic idea is that by, by developing methods for studying micro to macro maps and information processing systems, we could make more informed interventions and potentially potentially engineer outcomes in social systems. And I think we, we are going to be able to do that. Now, of course, one complexity that arises is that as everyone can do this, everyone, when you, know, you adopt this approach, can build better models, use the microscopic data. You'll have multiple different groups, nations, corporations, whatever, together intervening, you're going to create a lot more complexity and you might actually make it because there are, you know, all these, now these coupled systems competing, you might make it very hard to control the consequences of your intervention. Mm, co-evolution. We'll, we'll have a co-evolution of complex interventions, essentially. Exactly. And I think that's starting to happen now. I think it's already happening. Yeah, exactly. We just don't know it yet. Ah, uh, very good. Very good. I like that. That last insight is actually the coolest thing I think that we've said on this show is that as we get greater insight in how to control complex social systems, inevitably there will be a co-evolutionary war of such interventions. Ah! Yeah, it's just another version of Gephardt's law. <laughs> yes, indeed. Get back to the Harry Seldon thing, I'm just for fun. 
both Jessica and I are really serious Lord of the Rings nerds. I mean, I, I think I've read it 39 times. You've outed me. Uh, that's all right. You've been outed as a Lord of the Rings nerd. As I recall, in some of our conversations, we said, okay, what character are you? I think you said you were Aragorn. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm Aragorn. That's right. And I'm Tom Bombadil, without a doubt, right? <laughs> that's a good one. I, I, I think that's a great choice. I'm a little jealous. But anyway, so back to Foundation Trilogy of the folks working on this work that we know about, I've just decided that Simon is Harry Seldon. That's funny you say that because, so Harry, so I, when I give the talk, I, I haven't given the talk in a, in a couple of years, but I used to give the talk on inductive game theory and the circuits and the micro to macro map fairly regularly. And, and I did that work with Simon. And, um, and every time, particularly actually in, in audiences with some physicists, I would be called or accused of being Harry Seldon. Yeah, so maybe you're Harry Seldon. Well, or maybe it's the, the inductive game theory that's Harry Seldon. Though Simon looks like Harry Seldon. <laughs> he looks like Simon, exactly. That's Simon DeDeo, by the way, who was my very first guest on the Jim Rutt Show. So go look at episode number one, and you can hear a very, very interesting, far-ranging conversation with Simon DeDeo, a.k.a. Harry Seldon. Let's go on to another topic. Agent-based models have long been part of the work at SFI exploring complexity. Do you have a view of the strengths and dangers from that approach? Yeah, so I have this sort of canonical view of the strengths and dangers. I think that, um, you know, the 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 sort of standard thing you hear everyone complain about is you put anything in and anything comes out, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so I think there's a lot of bad agent-based modeling out there. You know, there are, now there are like little agent-based modeling worlds and even without sort of thinking hard, like the same happened, of course, for statistics with SPSS and so forth. And anyone can use these programs to build an agent-based model. And, and so a lot of bad science gets done. Now, of course, there's good agent-based modeling in Epstein and Axel and some of these other guys who, are, you know, they're doing very thoughtful work. Um, but it, it, at, the, at the sort of crudest level, what an agent-based model is, is just tracking individual, individual level behavior, tracking individuals. I mean, that's, you can define it. That, that could be like the simplest definition of an agent-based model, tracks individuals. And so in that sense, there's a lot, a lot of model, modeling frameworks fall under agent-based modeling. They're just not what we sort of canonically think of agent-based modeling. And, and so in that sense, too, the inductive game theory that I just mentioned falls in that in that space and and the difference though between I'd say the way that we do inductive game theory and the way that um, agent-based modeling is often approached is that the strategies that we use in our models come directly from the data and so I am fine and in fact advocate this approach if your if your strategies are empirical you know if and and if you're and if you are rigorous and thoughtful about how many of them you put in, right? So, you know, you don't want to build, you don't want to take into account a huge number of strategies. You want to have some understanding of what the most important ones are and, 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 and begin with those. And so, yeah, I mean, agent-based modeling is powerful. You know, it can give you a lot of insight. It's just that it's easy to abuse. Yeah, that's a very good point. I recently attended a workshop organized by Josh Epstein and Rob Axtell and some others called Inverse Generative Social Science. Yeah, in January, right? Yep, yep. And one of the points was, hey, let's start with the data when we can. What a concept, right? And then let's generate things like maybe genetic programming from the data, and then let the agents be those, right, as a way to just not make some stuff up. Because uh, I remember when I first 
retired from business, started playing pseudo-scientist. One of the first things I played with was agent-based modeling. And you know, my models would have 47 variables, which I just made up. When I got out to SFI, I quickly got schooled on <laughs> 47 variables. That's ridiculous. Three, three variables and two or one is better, right? And, and they were right. So you got to be really careful when you do this stuff, but you can get some amazing insights. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm a pluralist. I think that we, we gain insight by using lots of different tools and approaches. And so agent-based modeling or, you know, tracking individuals coupled to uh, extremely reduced, um, you know, more phenomenological model where you can do, you can analyze the model, you know, is you want as many, you know, multiple perspectives on a problem and they each do different things. And then it's sort of the, you know, it's the collective outcome that helps you understand what's going on. Very good. You've written a lot about social policing and its effects on social systems. I really like your paper, Policing Stabilizes Construction of Niches in Primates. Back to our apes and monkeys. Tell us about that. What we did in that study is we wanted to assess the contribution of policing to social system robustness. So I already talked a little bit about that. And we developed a set of experimental techniques to identify the consequences of the policing to robustness by taking into account both the causal contribution and exclusion dependence that I measured earlier. And so basically in that study, we had a like half a football size colony of, of macaques. There was a heavy tail distribution of power and the individuals in the tail performed this policing behavior and we, we removed them temporarily um, over the course of say 20 weeks on randomly chosen days once every week or so. And, um, and we, we studied how social networks and various social variables changed when they were removed and inferred from that the contribution of their policing behavior to things like how connected the networks are, how negative and positive behavior spread over those networks to how cliquish the societies were in the um, presence and absence of the policing mechanism, to how often individuals showed aggression versus socially positive behaviors as a consequence of the policing. So yeah, it was one of the first, what I would call um, behavioral knockouts. So most knockout work is done on genes or in molecular systems, and there really hasn't been rigorous not work, um, knockouts in social systems, and that was sort of one of the first. There had been much earlier studies in the 60s where the scientists sort of like just remove the individuals they thought were strong or powerful without really a theory for what would happen as a result of those removals. But, but we, we had a lot more, uh, of the, more of the ideas worked out when we did this knockout study. So it was fun. And what we found was that, in fact, in the, what the policing mechanism did is it made the system uh, more integrated. Individuals had a larger number of partners in their social networks. They had better relationships with those partners. There was less volatility, right? So um, there was less aggression. The policing seemed to allow individuals to build better local social environments. So the hippies were wrong. You can't off the pigs. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think there, you know, there, there are a lot, lots of things to discuss here about you know, how about inequality and egalitarian societies and our sort of uh, knee-jerk reactions to the 1% and so forth. I, th I think we really need to approach that in a more thoughtful way. It's not clear to me that having a system with billionaires is necessarily problematic. It, it, it may in fact be um, that with what you need are certain kinds of regulations to incentivize good behavior. But when you have individuals who are really out there in the tail, their ability to do things faster, more efficiently than say government might be quite a bit higher. And so these are trade-offs we need to really, you know, think hard about. Like, how do we, if we're going to have, we have a, a system where government can do certain things and 
you know, individuals out there in the tail can do other things, but we want, but because they're sort of like potentially could go rogue, we want to create incentives so that they do the right things. So that's that, you know, that's the question for me is, is it's an empirical question, what the best system is and not an ideological one. And I wish there were, you know, more empirical studies of how these different social structures, what their consequences are. There are some in economics, but I think we're, you know, really, really only getting to get, beginning to get a sense of, of the, the full picture. Yeah, folks, we know Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis have done work along with some other folks that strongly imply that the kind of work that you saw in primates also applies to humans in some of the simple games that they have set up all around the world cross-culturally, where the existence of the ability to punish bad actors reduces bad action. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on you know how this kind of work applies to humans? Well, I mean, one thing, just you mentioned punishment. I mean, one of the things that was very important in the, in the primates, you know, robustness and interventions conflict work is that the policers, they're, dispro- they're perceived to be disproportionately powerful, so no one's going to challenge them. But it's, it seems to be critically important that they actually don't use force when they intervene. So when they intervene, it's impartial, and they, they generally use, if any, very low levels of aggression, like not much more than a threat. Now, they, on the one hand, they don't need to. But, you know, if you look at old sociological theories of power, and one of the big influences on me was this guy, Bierstedt, wrote some very nice work on power uh, and what it is, some of the cleanest perspective on that that I read quite widely in that literature. When you use power, you risk losing it. That's one sort of thing. And another is that, you know, it's a credibility thing. So these individuals are out in the tail, and, and they're the the they're out there because of the collective dynamics and one um, and and to some extent choice made by the other individuals in the system. So if they were abusing their position, they probably would receive fewer signals because they would be avoided. And so the opportunity to give the signals wouldn't be there. And so they would actually accumulate, they would have less power because they, the signals are key to them, um, key to the stability of their power. Right. So this is a really sort of important point. Like they, they, will, they, they risk losing power when they use force in these contexts. That's one. And then another is, to some extent, the signaling dynamics is really like voting in the human case where you're making a choice for one leader over another. And you could, you could you know, influence that outcome by avoiding and not giving the signals. And you, get, you see that quite clearly in chimpanzee groups where, um, unlike the macaques, remember in one group at Yerkes, there was a, an alpha and a beta male. So the beta male gave a subordination signal. It's called a pant grunt in that case to the alpha male. Um, but, but the alpha male was very aggressive. And so in the dyadic relationship between the alpha and the beta, the beta had to give this signal, but the rest of the group did not like. And so alpha is defined by receiving a signal from everybody else. But the most powerful individual in the group is the beta male. So the beta male, even though he gave, gives a pant grunt to the alpha male, receives more pant grunts from a larger or more diverse group of, of individuals than the alpha male received. And was so we said that beta male was the one who was perceived to be the most powerful individual in the group, even though technically the alpha male is the one that receives pant grunts from everyone. And what you would actually see the chimps doing is they would pass by the alpha male and in within his sight, his field of vision, they would give in this sort of very irreverent way, pant grunts to the beta male. Uh-huh. Without giving pant grunts to the alpha male. And so it really, I mean, I, I didn't, I never published any papers in this because I didn't have enough data. And so this is, this is a little bit speculative, but it did really seem like a choice on the part of the chimps in terms of voting, they were like saying, look, I'm not voting for you. I'll give you a pant grunt if I have to, but I'm not really voting for you. I'm, I, I prefer this guy whose interventions are, you know, more diplomatic, actually, and who's, who's a better manager of the sort of group's social interactions than you are who uses force too much. 
So <laughs> really interesting stuff. And so, I, you know, I mean, like, this, this notion of, um, of power and how you maintain it and how you use it, I think it needs, it needs a lot of careful thought. Yeah, it sounds like we take that model. It's an argument for kind of self-organizing, network-based authority as opposed to top-down, role-based authority. Yeah, I mean, it can become top-down if there, if if you develop institutions and norms and rules that allow it. That comes back to the slow variable point. It make it hard to change, right? It, it effectively trans transitions into something that is top-down, even if it started bottom-up. Yep. Let's move on to our next. We're getting close to our timeline, so it will be one of our last, maybe not the last. You've dug as deeply as anybody I know into what might be called the foundations of complexity. I sometimes warn folks that complexity science is still a baby science. Now, I will say, since I've dug deep, deeply into it myself, spent at least 10 years, and I'm sure a lot's happened, is it still true that complexity science is a baby science? And if so, what do you think the next areas where foundations might become solid or will they ever? Well, I mean, I think it's definitely still compared to physics, for example, definitely still early days. And, and then there's a distinction, too, between, you know, people working in complexity science, maybe some theoretical biology and so forth, and the rest of biology and social sciences in particular. And so things might be moving kind of fast within complexity science, but they it's not the results and approaches and way of think, ways of thinking still haven't spread as far as they need to. So I can still go to a biology department and give a talk and find, you know, that they've never walked over to a physics department or, you know, the idea of using a maximum entropy framework or even, you know, an Ising model to study, you know, a biological system seems silly. And, and it, sometimes it is silly because it's, it's, they're used in, inappropriately or, or without any um, tension to mechanism. But yeah, so there are these, they're, they're definitely still sort of like, it's, just, it's um, the future is, what's the, the expression, the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed right, for complexity science. So that's one issue. But then in terms of the topics and the questions, you know, I, I always tell people at the public lectures and in the summer school talks that we sort of have two types of talks at these, at the summer school and in public lectures to some extent. The one type of talk is the kind of on the complexity science stuff that's now been around for a while and on which there are textbooks. So, for example, network science um, and some theoretical computer science and maybe, um, you know, dynamical systems, right? So you get Liz Bradley and, and um, Chris Moore writing his book on computation coming from theoretical computer science, not computation in biology, not computation by biological systems, which is what we do. Um, and you get, you know, Mark Newman doing this absolutely outstanding work on networks. And that stuff is, it's, you know, it's being hammered and it's, it's gotten to the point where it's pedagogical. So there's new, there's cool stuff on the horizon to do, but you know, there's like a core of agreed upon concepts and methods developed by these guys and can be conveyed in a fairly accessible pedagogical way to, um, to, you know, more junior or, or lay people. And then there's this other stuff. And the other stuff tends to be more like at the borders, as we were talking about earlier between philosophy and biology, or, you know, just where the questions are, where the, where the, all the currency is in working out the question and in taking that question and making it amenable to modeling and theory and, 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 um, and gathering data. And that's where another group of researchers sit is in that space. And certainly like my work and David's work sits there. And then the collective computation stuff that we do, you know, that as you, you, you enumerated, as I often do that long list of disciplines that informs collective computation, maybe in one or two of those disciplines, do I know, you know, as much as my peers, maybe one of them, 
in most of them, I am, you know, I really don't know that much, but I know a lot about collective computation and I know a lot and increasingly a lot about how it relates to ideas about computation in, in theoretical computer science. And so this thing that I study, you know, it sits at this, in this liminal space, to use a word you used earlier that I quite like, it sits in this liminal space, this, this sort of intersection between many different fields. And you have to be very comfortable drawing from those fields and working with collaborators. It's super important. You know more about those fields than you do. And, you know, be, being comfortable not knowing everything. And that's general general feature of being an SFI in order to make progress on these new in these new areas. And so I think there's a number of new areas, like uh, another one is the thermodynamics of computation that's, that's adjacent to collective computation that people like David Wolpert work on. Um, and, they're, and they're building on old ideas at SFI, but they're, they feel new again. They feel new and, um, you know, and, and very young. And, and so I'm always trying to convey to people, you know, the difference in the talks and in the summer school talks. Like here you're going to be exposed to this new set of ideas. It's not well worked out. The person giving the talk does not know all the answers, maybe knows more of the questions. And you're going to be exposed to this more pedagogical stuff and you shouldn't confuse the two. Hmm. Very good. Wonderful distinction. Yeah, like, for instance, the network science work of like Mark Newman, which has a really good book called Networks, I think, or something like that. That's uh, a good example, one that's well worked out. And then a lot of the rest of this stuff is still a work in progress. And so that's probably a good way to think about it. So here's our last question. You spent thousands of hours with primates of various sorts. And I've long been fascinated by the idea that we have such close relatives here on Earth. What do we think between us and chimps? It's 1%, 1.5% difference in genes, something like that. Mm -hmm. Gene expression. And frankly, I'm saddened in a pretty deep way about their fate in the wild. You've spent thousands of hours with them. What are chimps like and other primates? What are they like? You know, um, so uh, I, when I was in graduate school, I was in the group of Franz de Waal, and Franz had, he's a famous, he's a famous Dutch ethologist. And um, Franz would make this point that I think is just so important. And that is when he would hire like a graduate student or someone to, you know, tech to, to get, to help collect data on the, on the monkeys, whether on the, on the chimps, macaques or apes. Um, one of the questions he would ask them after they spent a couple of days up there on the tower is, you know, what do you think of the animals? What do you think of, you know, monkeys in the group or the chimps? And if they said, oh, I love them all, they, were not, they weren't hired, right? So one of the first, you know, points Franz made would, which I think is incredible I, uh, insight about social dynamics and, and individuals and individual behavior and so forth is, is that just like in human groups there, you know, there's this incredible heterogeneity and they have complex personalities and very interesting social structures. And if you don't see that, then, you know, you shouldn't be an ethologist, you shouldn't be collecting these data. And so the chimps, to be honest, like there's a lot of variability in, in um, how likable chimps are. There are some extremely likable chimps and, and very intelligent ones. There are others that are quite Machiavellian and just never seem happy. And, you know, I mean, just like humans, it, I, I see the, you know, the full range there as well. I mean, it's a little lesser in the macaques, but, um, but there too. And so chimps, I mean, there's this um, stereotype, chimps, you know, are the aggressive hierarchical ones and bonobos are the sort of, you know, free love, egalitarian ones. And these distinctions are, of course, they are stereotypes and they're amplified a little bit by the politics within the animal behavior community of who studied, you know, the, the Wrangums of the world from Wrangums at Harvard and the Franzes of the world or the Thomasellos and their particular viewpoints on things. But there is something to these distinctions. And it's, and it's not necessarily that these distinctions are, have a genetic basis. They might have some genetic basis, but they're distinctions that get amplified by social structure. And to give you an example, a reference a story by Robert Sapolsky. Sapolsky is a sort of a neuroscientist who works on cortisol and, and stress and um, health and, and, and he's done primate work and, and studied sort of the role of 
cortisol and serotonin and other things in, in behavior and dominance and, and um, related phenomena. And he studied for a while. He had a field site in Kenya. And I, I thought about going there and working with him when I was in grad school. But I remember he had this great story. So these, he had these groups of baboons at this field, two groups of baboons, I think. And um, there was a garbage dump. And in these groups of baboons, there are these very aggressive dominant males. And they, they, they weren't the type of males who, according to the story, who you know, modulated their power. They abused it regularly. And so there probably was a fair bit of change. But these aggressive males, of course, you know, by, by rights, got access to the food at this garbage dump and they got tuberculosis and they died. Nobody else ate the garbage. And so what this left, it's left this, this culture in this group or left, the only animals that left were these sort of docile, as he, you know, Sapolsky relays the story, these docile, um, less aggressive males. And the social culture of the baboons changed. And the interesting question was, well, was it just going to last as long as these young males who then became bigger and older lived? Or would it be culturally inherited? Or, and maybe there's some gene expression issues and so forth. And according to Sapolsky, it was. So the next generation after these younger males also uh, maintained these, these so social norms, so to speak, in terms of the style of interaction they had with other animals. And so, you know, the chimps are more aggressive. They do seem to be more aggressive, maybe a little bit more hierarchical than, than say, the bonobos. But I think this is a little bit overstated. And also, also it's not necessarily, you know, just a kind of like species-specific thing. There's a lot of plasticity and social structure. And coming back to that downward causation, behaviors get reinforced by the sort of norms and institutions that are in place. And when those change, when the mechanism or a, a context arises for those things to change, you can get big changes in the system. And that brings us full circle to the emergent or social engineering questions you asked earlier. Like, how do we intervene? Who do we remove? What behavioral changes do we want to induce? You know, what's, what's the right way to get a different social structure to, to move from a more despotic society to a hierarchical one? And I think by having these more informed micro to macro maps or information processing systems, we'll, we'll be in a better position to do that. And so there's a long answer to your, what, what, is, what are chimps like? They're, you know, they're like their social structure demands to some extent and to some extent what their the, the genetics give them. But you shouldn't discount, one shouldn't discount the importance of social structure and, and social institutions and animal societies to the behavior that we see. And I would add humans as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, that was, I think, a good wrap-up question. It managed to bring together a lot of the themes that we've talked about. I'd like to thank you for a truly interesting wild ride into all the things that you work on and the stuff that's done at Santa Fe Institute and elsewhere in these areas. I think our listeners will really like this. Thank you a lot. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I mean, it's wonderful talking to you. You, you have such an informed and wide-ranging mind that you know no topic is, is pretty much off limits. I like that a lot. That's what we try to do here, so thanks. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.